Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. It's no secret that we live in a world that's obsessed with early achievement. We all know that companies like Google, Facebook, and Snapchat were founded by wunderkinds who became billionaires while still in their 20s. And that kind of early and profound success not only gets massively celebrated, it has the effect of shaming the rest of us who mature much later in our careers, people my guest today calls late bloomers. And Rich Karlgaard was slow to blossom himself. He attended Stanford University, but after graduation held jobs as a dishwasher, security guard, and a temporary typist before finding his path. He was 44 years old when he became the publisher of Forbes magazine, and life has worked out for him rather well ever since. I mentioned Rich's personal experience because it symbolizes one of the key takeaways from his new book called Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. And that is this premise that early blooming is necessary for lifelong success. It isn't. It's simply and massively flawed. And for certain, some people are born into the world as prodigies. They possess extraordinary and natural gifts that propel them to early and remarkable achievement, and they're almost always deserving of our awe and admiration. But most of us aren't Doogie Hauser or Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, or Evan Spiegel. And so we needn't think we must follow their same path. I'm excited to have Rich on the podcast because the research that fills his book provides highly encouraging and even inspiring news for anyone who feels they've yet to sing their high notes. We humans actually tend to get better with age, not worse. For example, neuroscience recently has found that when we reach our 30s, 40s, and 50s, we begin to develop a whole range of skills we never had before. Things like executive functioning and management skills, compassion, and equanimity. And all that wisdom we need in order to be the most effective leaders, well, that doesn't really kick in until our 50s, 60s, or 70s. So if you're a parent and worried your child will end up permanently sidelined if they don't get into Harvard, Rich is about to give you some meaningful reassurance that they'll end up just fine. And the key focus of our discussion will be on leadership and upon the knowledge that most people in our workplaces not only feel they are late bloomers, they also have a much deeper well of human potential than we may have ever realized. So without further ado, I'm thrilled to welcome to the podcast, the publisher of Forbes magazine, Mr. Rich Karlgaard. Thanks for having me, Mark. Well, it's an honor for me to have you on and let's get right into it. The key premise of your book is that society over celebrates early success and sees it as being the best or even in your words, the only kind of achievement. So set the stage by telling us why you think we're so quick to honor early career triumphs and even to being dismissive of late bloomers. Well, I think America has always had an infatuation with early success. But remember, we've always thought of ourselves as a youthful nation. But the demographic truth is that we're not a youthful nation anymore. I think the average age of an American is 42 now. And there are only a few countries in the world, some Western European countries and Japan, that have an older population. So we need a new framework for how we regard success over increasingly long lives You know, F. Scott Fitzgerald back in the 1920s captured this idea that you succeeded early or you didn't when he said there are no second acts in American lives. Of course, he was maybe uh, forecasting his own demise. His own life. Because he achieved huge success in his early 20s. He wrote The Great Gatsby at age 25. And of course, he died in his early 40s, a bitter man. But it's really picked up pace recently, this idea that there's this window of opportunity to succeed big. 
You see it in the very rapid fortunes that are created in Silicon Valley kinds of technology. We have role models like Mark Zuckerberg or Sergey Brin and Larry Page of Google, who started these companies, in the case of Zuckerberg, while he was an undergraduate at Harvard, and Brin and Page, graduate students at Stanford. And they succeeded huge and early. And you can go back to the beginning of the modern technology era, where Bill Gates and Steve Jobs kind of did the same thing, although Jobs dropped out of college. But it's really picked up pace recently, because the two most dominant industries in the United States over the last 20 years have been Silicon Valley kinds of technology. And by mm-hmm. that, I would include Amazon and all of these technology hotbeds around the country, whether they're in the valley or not. And high finance of the Wall Street kind or the hedge fund kind. And you say, well, how does that drive this need for early success that ripples through the school system? Well, if you look at some of the iconic names in Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, some of the iconic names in Silicon Valley today, Google, Facebook, They really have a bias for people who went to a handful of elite universities. And then you back that up. What does it take to get into those elite universities? It takes great test scores and great grades on an advanced placement track. What does that mean? It means you have to start thinking about the school system and how you're going to game the school system, get these great test scores and grades very early, even in grade school. In Manhattan today, there's a preschool that charges $45,000 a year for three- and four-year-olds promising, quote, an immersion in a multi-building campus, exposure to various languages. This is for three- and four-year-olds. And the implicit message to affluent parents in Manhattan is that if you don't do this now, you'll have only yourself to blame 15 years from now when your child doesn't get into Harvard. Well, it's interesting because it seems in reading your book and just listening to this description. By the way, I'm not sure that you pointed that out about the aging population, although I think everybody's aware of it, but pinning down a number, I don't remember reading that in your book, and that's sort of a stunning thing. And it makes me ask the question of if we're all sort of aware, so we'll come back to the parenting issue and spending $50,000 to put a kid through preschool out of fear. Isn't there sort of this weird irony going on here that we are still honoring all these 20-year Wunderkinds when we ourselves feel like we're late bloomers? Oh, sure, Mark. I think the majority of people do identify with this late bloomer feeling. And that's because if we've created a conveyor belt of success starting in preschool and working its way up the system, how many people are going to excel in that kind of a system? What if you are simply one of those kids who matures late, which is certainly the case for myself? What if you're one of those kids from a family that doesn't really honor high-performance academic tracks because they don't know about it? Lots of kids fit that definition. What if there's been some trauma in your family? What if you have a different learning style that is completely ignored by a school system that is bet at all? on standardized tests and high Mm -hmm. grades. That is to say, what if you are this brilliant carpenter, or you could have been a brilliant carpenter, but you were never exposed to carpentry growing up, but you had all the latent skills that would have made you a great carpenter, and you're really good at hand-eye coordination, and you like manipulating physical things rather than abstractions on a piece of paper or a computer screen. There are so many differently gifted people, and at the end of this conveyor belt, what are we to do with those people? We're talking about the vast majority of people. So I believe the vast majority of people do identify with this late bloomer idea. So going back now to the parents willing to pony up all that kind of money, is it fear? Is that what it is? Because you would think if you have the capacity to spend that kind of money, 
that you probably have a higher level of education and you might actually be slightly more enlightened to the extent that you could see that some people don't necessarily bloom that early and maybe making that kind of an investment isn't really necessary or you know what's the mindset of a parent that's willing to spend this because I'm hoping that people listening to this are thinking well that's crazy well I think it is fear majority is fear, but part of it is bragging rights. Honest to God, you wouldn't think this would be the truth, but you look at the college bribery scandal Mm -hmm. that broke in March, where really wealthy people were gaming the system, not by just, you know, hiring tutors, SAT prep tutors for their kids, but they were actually figuring out a way to bribe school officials to get their kids into universities the kids otherwise couldn't have gotten into on their own. So it's some combination of that we're really worried. As we look into this highly turbulent economy where you have accelerating rates of geopolitical uncertainty, of accelerating rates of technological evolution, and the one thing that you can bet on is that if you sent your kid to Stanford or MIT and they are on a STEM track, they probably are in a really good position to do well right out of the gates. And then you don't have to worry about that anymore. You will have successfully launched your child. But as I say, how many kids can do that? I mean, the admissions rates at these elite schools is maybe three or four percent of all applicants. And I sit around with parents my age and we all we all kind of laugh, but we feel a little guilt about this is that we could never get into the school. Absolutely. Couldn't get into the same university we graduated from. No, we couldn't. And I could go two or three levels down and I couldn't have gotten into those universities based on my track record in high school and by the way junior college i mean early achievers generally don't go to junior college but i'm glad there are late bloomers out there like tom hanks and aaron Rodgers who did and prove that you can be a junior college graduate and do well but i think it's fear but i also think there is that kind of bragging right if you're a parent at a cocktail party in an affluent suburb and you're talking about what your kids are doing It gives you great pride to say that your kid is in an elite school or just got his or her first job at Google. Mm -hmm. I mean, I understand it, but it it is a little little obsessive, right? Yeah, it's one of those things, Mark. This whole hyper-meritocracy that bets it all on academic performance within a narrow range, there was no conspiracy of bad people who made this happen. It's taking a basically good idea of meritocracy and the idea that kids should take school seriously And it's way overshot the mark today where we're creating all of the societal and family dysfunction where families are torn up because their kids aren't blooming early. They don't know whether to apply more discipline or loosen the reins. They start overspending on tutors and sports camps and things like that, putting their own financial future in jeopardy. So it's basically a reasonably good idea that's way overshot to the point where it's creating more dysfunction. Sort of like, how can you overshoot a good idea? Well, fitness is a good idea, correct? Yeah. Except if you become an addicted gym rat or an anorexic, then it's not a good idea. Well, I have relatives up in the Bay Area near you, and I know that not that long ago, there were several kids from Palo Alto high schools right outside the border of Stanford University, the very school they're trying to get into, and they're throwing themselves in front of trains and killing themselves. And so, Mark, that was probably the trigger that drove me to write this book. I'd always wondered wow. whether my own story of being a late bloomer at age 25, I still was incapable of holding a, a real job other than occasional dishwasher and security guard and things like that. And I was aware that I was just falling behind rapidly. So it sounds humorous to tell the story today. 
But I was pretty torn up about it even then. I always wondered whether my story was worth sharing. It was kind of always percolating in my mind. Would it be useful? Could it help people if I shared my own story? And what really urged me to get off my hind end and do the research and write the book for late bloomers was this living in the backyard of all of this horrible tragedy in nearby Palo Alto, where you had six student suicides in the 2014-2015 school year. But even more than that, the writer Hannah Rosen from Atlantic went in to investigate what was going on. And she found out that it just one of those high schools, Gunn High School, which is about four miles from Stanford campus, that beneath the three suicides at Gunn were more than 40 hospitalizations for what is called suicide ideation. And so you had just an epidemic of kids who felt so miserable about themselves because they weren't super achievers that they were thinking these very grave thoughts. I just found out recently after the book came out that more than 50% of Stanford students, the people who won the race, they won the early blooming race and got into a university with a 3% admissions rate, more than 50% of them are getting psychological counseling. What do you attribute that to? And perhaps even the writer at The Atlantic. Is it the pressure from society in general that if I don't succeed, get into Stanford and then do well, I'm going to be a failure? Or is there something else that I'm missing? I think it's all of those things. On the whole, it's good if you get into a good school. On the whole, it's good if you get good grades. Certainly, if you do a back analysis of one's prospects in life and salary and all of that kind of stuff, it does correlate And so people take this, but they take it to a place where they're pushing their kids to the breaking point. Mm -hmm. I would use the analogy of sports. Let's say running. Let's say you want to run a marathon and your goal is three hours, which is fast. No, it's fast. It's not world class by any sense. No, but it's fast. (laughs) Somebody out of the working world trying to run a marathon, it's a really good time. And let's say there are two identical people who have the goal of breaking three hours. And they look alike, and they're the same age, and they have the same talent. And one runner thrives running 75 miles a week, and another one starts breaking down at 60 miles a week. They just simply break down. They start accumulating a lot of little injuries that become big injuries, et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing they can do about that. They can do the stretching. They can do everything else. They simply break down past a certain number of miles per week. Well, is the answer for the one that's breaking down to double down, to go from 60 to 100 miles a week? I don't think so. Right. And that's what we have when we're pushing these kids. They're breaking down. Some will thrive. But the answer, if they're starting to break down, and you can see the signs that they're breaking down with anxiety and depression, and these kids, you know, will leave the signs on their own social media. One of the kids who did kill himself at Gunn High School had posted on Instagram or Facebook that he was tired of getting up at 3.30 in the morning to study for his advanced placement courses. Mm -hmm. He couldn't take it anymore. Well, that's a sign. You know, it was a tragic sign. And so these kids are breaking down. Some will thrive. Others will break down. And the answer is they're breaking down, not to double down. The answer is to step back and say, well, maybe this kid doesn't respond to being pushed in a certain direction. doesn't mean that they're a bad kid or a lazy kid. So I think we have to be more alert to this, but that's almost too late. I mean, what we have to do is create an educational system that is able to identify real latent gifts and strong areas of interest for kids who may not find it on that conveyor belt that emphasizes 
standardized tests and grades. Well, you've given us an enormous amount of thought, obviously, producing a book in it. And so I think this is sort of a great setup for what I'd like to know from you, which is since we as a society focus so much on early achievement, people listening in on this are probably going to be leaning on the side of that's not who I am. I'm the late bloomer. And so for anybody, and you sort of hinted at this in the book, anyone who feels like they're living an underwhelming life because they didn't invent Facebook or Snapchat in their 20s and 30s, or to people who believe because they didn't kill it in their 20s, they're never going to, you know, that they missed that window and it's never going to come back. What's your advice? What have you nailed down there in terms of the key messaging? Well, the key messaging is have faith that neuroscience and psychology overwhelmingly supports the idea that we can bloom throughout our lives. But there are opportunities for blooming may change. For example, early bloomers, particularly in today's technology finance driven world, are really good at rapid algorithmic thinking. And that's basically what a standardized test is. And it helps you get into these elite universities, etc. Well, it turns out this is based on a 2015 study by Harvard and MIT a study led by Harvard's Laura Germain, MIT's Joshua Hartzorn, and they were both postdoc students working with Massachusetts General Hospital, and they asked the seemingly simple question, at what age do we cognitively peak? The answer turns out to be very complex, intriguing, and I find ultimately hopeful. It depends what cognitive ability you're talking about. So if you are talking about rapid algorithmic processing speed, working memory, the kinds of things that make you a really good software programmer or a high-frequency trader, those do indeed peak in our teens and 20s. But what happens in our 30s, 40s, and 50s is that a whole other set of neurological attributes begin to come into their own that support communication skills, empathetic skills, leadership skills, all of the kinds of things that we see. I mean, you can stand back and observe this. So on the one hand, it's not really earth-shattering science here, but it is science that supports what you can see if you care to look. That We become better at these things in our 30s, 40s, and 50s, and then you get into our 60s and 70s, provided we're staying healthy and mentally engaged. A whole other set of attributes that support wisdom and the long view really come into play. So as we think about our blooming opportunities, we should lean into the person we're becoming, number one. If you're in your late 20s and early 30s and you're frustrated that you didn't get the great software programming job early, well, maybe that opportunity is beginning to pass for you. And you've got to think about the person that you're becoming. And then the second thing is you just have to get out there and experiment. You have to get out there and expose yourself to opportunity. Don't be one of these sorry souls who says, I sent 100 resumes to LinkedIn and nothing happened. Well, that's not putting yourself in the game. You have to get out there and mix it up. Sometimes you have to take the job that isn't the great job, but that is in a culture at a kind of company that will support who you are in your growth. I wrote about in the book that what got me out of my lack of early blooming was a temporary typing job when I was 26 years old. And it was a research institute in Palo Alto, and they had a shower and locker room facility. So a lot of people would run at noon in the Palo Alto hills, the scientists and the engineers. And I started running with them and had conversations with them. And it became apparent to a couple of them that I was being underused as a temp typist. And one of them put it to me, Rich, why are you still doing this? 
And I just fessed up. I said, I don't know. I'm really kind of lost at this point. I've got to take it because I've got to feed myself. And do you think you could be a technical writer or editor? And I said, I'd love to try. And they gave me the opportunity and it worked and thus began my entry into the real adult life. Well, you see, if I'd applied for a job as a technical writer Mm -hmm. or technical editor, I would have been screened out from the get go. And I think that's the unfortunate reality today is that HR tends to screen out people who have holes in their resume, whether it's the parent who stopped out to be a full-time mom or dad, or somebody who just got off to a wandering start, or somebody who was working with a company that blew up and was laid off. I mean, there can be many reasons why someone has a gap in their resume, and that gap in the resume can be easily explained. But, you know, not in a process where you're submitting resumes to LinkedIn. It just simply, you get overlooked in the screening process. So you have to get out there and stick your nose into it. You know, if you're more of an introverted type, that's not easy, but it has to be done. Well, do you think kids coming up through college, graduating from college, going into jobs, do you think that is it possible that they've sort of created a binary career path? Like it's either LinkedIn or I'm a failure. Is it that? Because what you just described makes all the sense in the world but it doesn't sound like a winning formula until you get to the other side of it. So if you're trying to persuade somebody who's just graduated from college and saying, look, you're not getting any response from LinkedIn, so why don't you go find an organization where you might be able to start at the bottom and work your way up? Does that even appeal to a lot of people today? Or have we created a culture where it's like, no, we got to go right to the top? Oh, well, I think you ask a really good question here, Mark. I think it has to do with the sunk cost idea that I can't possibly start in the mailroom. Forget that Michael Lovitz started in the mailroom, the person who created Creative Arts Agency, the leading talent agency in Hollywood. Forget that there's all these stories of people who started in the mailroom. If you bet it all on SAT tutors and tutors that would help you get straight A's on your advancement placement courses, and then you went to a university that costs well into the six figures over the four years. And then possibly on top of that, you went to grad school and incurred more costs. You're going to say naturally, are you kidding me? Right. I have to start in the mail room. So, yeah, that does set up this binary situation that helps no one. Well, <laughs> I want to challenge you a little bit. I want to push you to be a bigger advocate for your cause here. Sure. In your own book, you write that The New Yorker and Fortune magazine both publish annual lists of the most successful people under age 40. So you're rubbing them in our faces, these magazines. And even your magazine, Forbes, celebrates the 30 most successful people under 30 every year. So it even gets worse. So my question is, why not start publishing a list of people who leverage a lifetime of experience to accomplish something remarkable, maybe in their 50s or 60s or better? Why not simply create a late bloomer award and find people in society doing extraordinary things that may have been 10 years earlier, you know, clerk typists like you were? Well, there you go. That's a great question. First of all, the Forbes under 30 franchise is not only a magazine cover and an annual list. It's now become a very important part of our revenue structure because we have a series of under 30 conferences around the world, one in the U.S., one in Israel, a couple in Europe, one in Hong Kong, though that may have to be moved to Singapore, I guess. Mm. And we've really rebranded it. It was important for us to do that because before we had done that, the complaint among media buyers, the people who ultimately make the decision on whether your publication gets advertising dollars or another one, had typecast Forbes as a publication for older people who'd already made it 
and there's this idea in advertising that's provably false, but it remains that people's brand preferences harden at an early age. And therefore, no matter how affluent your readers and viewers might be, if they're past a certain age, it isn't worth the trouble, other than if you're trying to sell Metamucil ads or something yeah. like mm-hmm. that. So it's sort of ridiculous, but we had to do, we had to play by the rules of our industry. Now, what you propose is something that I propose. I'm working on it. I would cool. be able to do it. I think that you identify something that is absolutely huge out there, particularly the millennial generation is the first one to surpass the baby boom generation in population, but barely, even as the population of the United States is now much greater. The midpoint of the baby boom generation is 65 right now. So you've got at least on the back half of the baby boom generation, you still have 77 million baby boomers, call it 35 to 40 million baby boomers who are roughly 57 to 65, something like that. And these are people who have still tremendous amount to give inside of organizations. They have a tremendous amount of ability to go out and be a successful entrepreneur. And I don't mean to dismiss people on the backside of the baby boom generation, because those that have kept themselves healthy and mentally alert, the same wonderful set of opportunities apply. It is funny, though, Mark, that when you get into who supports these kinds of things, advertising is slow to catch up. It makes no sense whatsoever. I'm in my 60s now. Are you telling me that because I drive a certain brand of car, I'm fixed, that I will never change now for the rest of my life? Well, that hasn't been true at all at any point in my life. Well, it's interesting because at the end of your book, you reveal this sort of collective epiphany, which is you're telling people about your book and they're looking at you and they're saying, well, you know, Rich, I'm a late bloomer. And I think that kind of surprised you. People that I know, you know, that I socialize with ask me, oh, who's your next guest? What's your next podcast? And so I told them about you and almost to a person, they said, you know, I feel like I'm that guy, like I'm a late bloomer. And then you look at the millennials and particularly the older ones, the original, the first group that came out and, you know, that were graduating from college in the early 2000s, they graduated into this massive recession. And so we see now, even in your magazine, the articles saying that they don't have as many houses as their parents did. They don't have the same wealth. They haven't got the same, you know, career progress. So I would think that, you know, maybe you could start persuading these advertisers to realize that it's not just the guy who's 60 or 50 who'd be interested in seeing people do something really, really remarkable in their life in their 40s, 50s or 60s. It's people who thought when they got out of college that life was going to be great and then the world turned on them and they haven't really gotten where they wanted to because of how long it took to recover and where they had to start in their careers and so forth. So I'm excited that you are even interested in the idea or I even thought about it. But I think there's hope in that. There's inspiration in that. Well, I hope so. But I'll tell you, there's a little bit of a stigma. The people that I find are really embracing this book. If there's a bullseye reader that really gets excited about this book, it's parents of mm-hmm. teens and young adults. Mm-hmm. I would call them twofers because they're thinking they have teens and young adults that may not be blossoming on society's accelerated schedule, which means accelerated to the point of insanity, I suggest. 
and they're thinking about themselves. Often one of those parents, typically the mom, has sacrificed some part of her professional life to be either a full-time mother or a part-time mother, whatever it is. I mean, that's just the truth of American society today. It's, mm-hmm. it's more mothers than, than fathers. But just stepping back, parents of teens and young adults who also think about, well, what am I going to do? I'm in my 40s. I'm kind of worried that in this technological-driven society, there are people coming up behind me who know more about workflow apps and, and things like that than I do, and I'm beginning to feel a little creaky here. You know, what do I do now? And so when I set out to write this book, I didn't know who would most respond. But the stigma goes to the millennials, particularly young male millennials. I've talked to several, and they simply don't want to admit. They're not ready to admit that they might be late bloomers. They'll take inspiration in Joe Rogan or somebody like that. That's fine. I I happen to be kind of a closet fan of Joe Rogan. There's a sort of macho element of, you know, vitamins and weightlifting and, you know, (laughs) pulling your way through and all of this. And I think they're not ready to admit that they might be playing on a playing field that does not favor their inherent skills. And that's the thing. If you really want to know the secret of late bloomers and my whole outlook at life, Mark, I'm going to tell you something I've told very few people. My whole way of looking at life is because of my early passion for track and field. I mean, I grew up and that was the sport. By the way, my dad was a high school athletic director and a really good all-around high school athlete in my hometown of Bismarck, North Dakota. He was the kind of guy who was all-state football, basketball, and he was a good enough baseball player that he got a tryout with the Chicago Cubs. And then he went off to university, and he was you know, one of those kids. He was a good all-arounder, but not good in any single sport, and, and so he wasn't a great college athlete. He came back, physical education teacher when I grew up, and then he later became the athletic director in the public school system and a well-known man around town. So I grew up, and I'm this skinny, underdeveloped kid, and I weigh 80 pounds, and I'm five foot two in eighth grade, and I'm getting the living crap kicked out of me in football practice, wondering what a, what a loser I must be because this is happening. Not failing to step back and looking at it objectively, looking at the physics of it, of that if you're five, two, and 80 pounds, and there are 140 pounders barreling down on you, you're probably going to lose that confrontation. But I eventually found my salvation as a cross-country runner and track and field runner. That immersed me in track and field. Why I say track and field shapes my outlook for so much in life. The beautiful thing about track and field is you look at all the different body types and skill types that succeed. Look at a 100-meter dash. These are explosive sprinters that can get out of the blocks and just torque it up and reach these high-end speeds. They're the same kind of skills that make you a great wide receiver in the NFL. You have these marathon runners who are skinny. Today, marathon running is dominated by East Africans from Ethiopia and Kenya, and they are generally about five foot eight and 120 pounds. Then you have shot putters that weigh 300 pounds. You have pole vaulters that are some combination, some midpoint between being a gymnastics expert and being a sprinter. High jumpers are tall and skinny. You've got all of these body types that succeed. And you think about, well, the economy is bigger than track and field. And when you look back and you see all the kinds of people that can succeed, if they only find what their native gifts are and can expose themselves so they get really fall in love with their own talent and commit to it, then everybody has a chance to succeed. I just pity what we have today is that people are grinding away thinking they can be a world-class sprinter 
when their actual native gifts might be in the steeplechase or throwing the discus, some other event. It's a brilliant image and metaphor, and it explains so much. The missing component is economics, though. So if I'm a shot putter, I'm probably not going to be making as much as the guy who can run a nine and a half second, you know, 100 meter dash, right? Yeah. That's the sexy race. That's the one that gets all the publicity. Everybody knows he's the fastest guy in the world. All of that, that doesn't come with being the shot putter. So you have to sort of reconcile that a lot of our attention is obviously being given to technology right now because they're not only creating things that we're using, apps, et cetera, but they're making a fortune by doing it, right? So we have to sort of square up our expectations about what's reasonable because most people making a billion dollars in their 20s is not a reasonable expectation. Okay, you make a really good point here. Usain Bolt, who does hold the world record in the 100-meter dash, greatest sprinter ever, happened to be the highest paid runner out there. It is a glamour event. And getting a job at Google or getting top shelf venture capital financing from Silicon Valley venture capital companies, that's glamorous stuff. I'll tell you, my wife and I, every week between Christmas and New Year's, rent a condominium in Indian Wells down in the Palm Springs area. Mm -hmm. And we rent it from a plumber. And he lives in Newport Beach. Mm -hmm. How is it that we're renting it? For those listening, these are very affluent places. Yeah, very affluent places. And how is it? Well, because he's really good at plumbing and he built a business around plumbing. You know, one of the things that I advocate in this whole late bloomer idea is that we need to revive skilled trades in our public high schools. Only one out of 20 public high schools today has a skilled trades track or what we called in my day shop class because we became infatuated with this idea that everybody should go to college and everybody should go to college right away. And that simply doesn't work. Not everybody is ready for college who's even might be a, a good college student. And then there are many people who are not going to be great college students because they're good in other things. One of my former college roommates is a clinical psychologist in Pasadena, and he tells the story of a family who came in and they're worried about their 16-year-old boy who was struggling in school and, quote unquote, hanging out with the wrong people. So my friend talked to the teenage boy and learned that the kid really had a passion that not even the parents knew because the kid was embarrassed to tell the parents. And it was nothing illegal or anything like that. The kid loved cars and he loved working on cars. He loved both turning a wrench and he loved tweaking the software in cars. And the friends he was hanging out with were not bad kids. They were other kids who liked cars. But you see, this is an upper middle class family from Pasadena and when my friend, the clinical psychologist, told the father of the teenage boy, you know, maybe your boy is not ready for college. Have you thought about maybe he should get a job at a Lexus service center or something like that or go to trade school? And the father got very angry. Yeah, it's insulting. It was an insult. Mm -hmm. He said, I went to USC. My son is going to USC. This is what we do around here. Mm -hmm. But the fallacy is that, that you're in a trade school and you're always going to be at the low end of the trades. Well, first of all, the low end of skilled trades is pretty high. If you're a skilled welder or skilled plumber or HVAC person, you can make a decent amount of money and you can make it rather early. So your return on investment for going to the trade school can be pretty good. You know, you're making $75,000, $100,000 a year after a $15,000 all-in investment in your trade school education. That's pretty good. I agree. But the point is, 
number one, you don't have to be a skilled tradesperson forever. At age 26, you may decide, you know, I've been an HVAC. You know, I would really like to be a civil engineer and work on it at that end. Now, what employer wouldn't want somebody who had actually worked in the trenches as a skilled tradesperson who now had a civil engineering degree? I mean, that's a pretty powerful combo. Number two, as in the case of the plumber who had built a plumbing firm, you can build a company around your skilled trade. This plumber built a plumbing firm, which is how he's able to own high-end properties around Southern California. Well, I want to transition a little bit into applying what you've learned to managing people. So we're talking a lot about different kinds of education. We know now that Gen Z just had its first class of college graduates this summer. And in my hometown, Jean Twenge is a professor at San Diego State. She's sort of the expert now on this new generation. And she says, this is a generation that has the worst mental health in decades. So I'm wondering, what's your insight? If I'm a manager and I'm bringing people in who are 22, 23, 24 years old, and they're coming out of this generation, how do I manage them? I mean, what are the ways that I can support them? Because obviously they're coming in with a little bit of a deficiency that you're not going to be able to remedy, but at least you can work with it and help people get better. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. I've become a huge believer in age-diverse workforces. And this really solves a societal problem in the United States right now. We've got all of these baby boomers who still feel like they have a lot to contribute but employers don't want them anymore. Maybe these aging baby boomers didn't pick up the entrepreneurial skills along the way. Maybe they didn't do the networking that they should have done throughout their career, which is really important. And they find themselves kind of isolated, knowing they can contribute, but finding a hard location to put their skills to work. So you have that on the one end, and then you have these anxious, depressed Gen Zs coming into the workforce today. Everything you say, everything that Jean Twenge says is correct. By the way, she's a genius. She's brilliant. What she's saying is absolutely necessary for us to hear. But I find the answer is probably an age-diverse workforce. The natural evolution of a manager over the course of their career is that at some point we peak. We peak in our abilities to manage a whole lot of direct reports and reports under them. We peak in our desire and our ability to work 60 and 70 hours a week. We peak in our desire and ability to hop on a plane at the last minute and live the kind of life that you need to if you're going to earn the big bucks as a big executive. At some point, most of us will find that we can't do that anymore, and it's time to step aside. But if stepping aside is jumping off a cliff because there's nothing beyond that, then we really hesitate to do that. And then we get into a turf war with the up-and-coming Gen Xers, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea was, what if we could create a career arc in organizations where past your peak salary and title, there's still a place for you as an internal consultant inside the company that does a lot of coaching. Your salary is reduced, your title changes, but you're still there and valued. But one of your jobs is to really work with the millennials and the Gen Zs who are brilliant in many ways, but also brittle. You know, we've made them brittle. The school system has made them brittle and be able to work with them and show them the ropes and show them in the ropes that is not in a finger-wagging way, but in a way that, look, you have a lot of brilliant ideas here. Let's talk this through. Let's do some game planning and scenario planning around this. 
because there may be some traps that you don't see that I see because I've been there and done that and seen everything. Though I don't have your technical brilliance, you know, I know how organizations work. And I know that if you approach it this way and you might alienate this person over here and and not be able to sell your project, even though it's a brilliant idea. And I think this is a huge opportunity for organizations to think about age diversity. I saw this at work in a company called Specialized Bicycles, which is one of the top high-end bicycle companies in the United States. They make road bikes that are used in the Tour de France. They make great mountain bikes. The founder started the company in the 70s. He's a college dropout from San Jose State. He fell in love with the Italian form of cycling. He began to import parts from Italy, and then he eventually built it around his company called Specialized. And Mike Sinyard is the entrepreneur's name, and he's in his 70s now. Rail thin, still goes on long rides. And you go down to Specialized today, a leading player in the industry, and you see this amazingly age-diverse workforce. You see Sinyard and executives in their 50s and 60s working alongside of these brilliant people in their 20s and 30s. As Sinyard says, you know, these people coming up, they're so good at anything that, that is driven through software. So they're really good at CAD design. And he said, but you know, the thing that makes a really good bike design really great, that gives it that sensuality, that gives it that eye appeal kind of bike that you're going to overpay for because you've fallen in love with it. He said, CAD can't get you there. Mm -hmm. What gets you there is playing around with clay models. Mm -hmm. So he's having these old artisans teach these young people how to work in clay models. I mean, I just think that's the kind of brilliant. Well, I'm completely on board with you and not only on board with you, but as I'm reading your book. So just to set the stage for people who haven't read it yet. One of the things that you point out that is really cool is that as we age, we actually become more curious and more composed and patient and empathetic and resilient and compassionate, and we have greater wisdom. And so as a result of that, it struck me that why aren't we taking these people and making them the managers? But what you're suggesting, these are all leadership traits, and you want somebody who has those kinds of experiences to mentor other people. And coincidentally, I just had Jonathan Rosenberg on the podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. He and Eric Schmidt wrote that great book on Bill Campbell, the coach. Yes. And that's what we were talking about is this idea that, you know, you have somebody who's, you know, who are they coaching? They're coaching the CEO and the chairman and senior executives. So even at that level, those people would benefit from having coaches. And one of the things that I have a lot of experience with is just interaction on Twitter with people talking about leadership. And it's invariably people are sending to me like, people don't think like you. They don't manage like that. They are intimidating. They manage by fear and they, they don't even know what they're doing most of the time. And, you know, if only we could teach them. And I thought, well, you know, as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, going back to the very beginning, people are living longer. They're keeping themselves healthy. They're keeping themselves intellectually fit. They still want to keep working. Wouldn't it be smart for companies to say, we're going to take people who have that aptitude and have them work and mentor with the younger managers to help not just accelerate their growth, but also to give them comfort? You know, am I making the right decision? Is this the right approach? How am I doing with my team? All of that could be elevating and it could really put people into, you know, sort of purpose at the later parts of their career. And this is what you're talking about. So you can tell I'm a little excited about it. Oh, yeah. That's what's so funny, the irony here, and it's kind of a bitter irony, if you look at Silicon Valley, 
this creator of all the great wealth, there is this ageism that is rampant and no one really denies. I mean, you had Mark Zuckerberg didn't help things yeah. one years ago. He said, you know, basically people under 30 are smarter or the mm-hmm. celebrated entrepreneur and venture capitalist Vinod Khosla said basically people over 45 are brain dead. I can give you three people in their 70s. One, unfortunately, Bill Campbell, you know, died a couple years ago. But Bill Campbell, the coach, who literally was a football coach at Columbia and came out to Silicon Valley and was top-level executive at Apple. And, and he created, as you say, this mentorship thing where people were lining up to see him. Young entrepreneurs were lining up to see him. You'd either meet Bill at the local bar in Palo Alto where he would hold court or you could book a meeting. And then you have John Chambers, who just turned Mm -hmm. 70. John Chambers used to be the CEO of Cisco, was led it from $70 million in revenue to $40 billion in revenue. And now I just interviewed John Chambers, and he has this company called JC2 Ventures. And so I figured him as an angel investor. And he said, oh, investing is the last thing I do. Coaching is the thing that really gets me charged up. You know, he takes entrepreneurs up to Alaska for fishing trips where they sit around campfires and talk about personal things, talk about fears. He talks them through. And then the third example, the third gentleman in his 70s, Ray Lane, used to be the number two at Oracle. He was the one who was the compliment to Larry Ellison. Mm -hmm. And Oracle really got great under Ray Lane, being a compliment to the founder, Larry Ellison. And then Lane became a venture capitalist at Kleiner Perkins. Now Lane is doing an angel investing fund. And he said, it's different. He said, I want to get down there and coach. And the young people love the idea of being coached. This is great. So there's just a crying need out there. I would love to see this happen. I'm so glad that we got into this. And I'm glad that you've been thinking about it. And you're in a fantastic place to really help spearhead that and get organizations to start thinking about how is it that you can elevate two generations and put them in their highest purpose. I think it's really brilliant. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for also supporting that and seeing that opportunity. Well, I mean, this is an alleged lawsuit, but it seems, you know, plausible. I'm speaking from what I've read, not what I know. But apparently IBM has been sort of systematically letting people go in their 40s and 50s in order to recreate it as a Google environment. So now there's this massive lawsuit that they've let like 75, 100,000 workers go. And I'm laughing, but I shouldn't be because it's tragic and it's heartless. But, you know, we have this mindset that everything has to be youthful. And that's just sort of a craziness. I also want to point out that we have a theme here in the podcast. But one of the things that as I was listening to you describe those three people, including Bill Campbell, is the whole idea of taking somebody out of the workplace, even for a drink. Oh, that was the first time I realized that he was having his coaching sessions in a bar. But taking somebody on a camping trip or a fishing trip and just getting to know someone, that's the heart involved with that. That's not an intellectual, here's how you need to get better, Rich. It's tell me about what's going on and how you're thinking and what's influencing in your life. It's the, the whole picture. And we don't seem to do a whole lot of that, which is why I think Bill Campbell is so remarkable. Yeah, and he did his after hours consulting at the bar. He did his daytime consulting in this nondescript office in Palo Alto. You would think you were walking into some broken down chiropractor's office when you went in there. I mean, it was like that, but he didn't care. It actually probably made people comfortable because it was a place where you knew you could get down and talk about reality. But yeah, look, if you're going to be successful, particularly entrepreneurs, I mean, think about all the psychological challenges you have along the way if you're an entrepreneur. 
Think about what happens if one of your early employees that you always love turns out not to be the employee that can take you to the next step and you have to have that hard conversation. And maybe there's a way to find a place for that early employee, maybe not. What if you're going through some personal struggles, whether health or your marriage is in trouble or yeah. kid is getting into trouble? I mean, these are human beings that run and manage these companies. And I think that we, first of all, I mean, America's not so good. I think we're getting better. But we're not so good at admitting that mental illness is just as big a challenge as physical illness. And the mental illness could be transitory or it could be something deeper. But we all go through those periods where we're not at our best and we can get tied up in knots and yep. make our situation worse. And then we're just squandering our talent. And if you're the entrepreneur of a company, you're squandering the opportunity of the whole company. So that's just a tragic loss. And again, sort of the mentorship, coaching, counseling role is one that older seasoned people are, who better? Who better than that? Yes, because as Jim Rohn said, you know, they've lived through the winters of life. Yeah. They know how to get through it. They know what fears are real and which ones need to be dismissed and put out quickly, you know? Yeah. This is why you have to go back to the career arc because if you don't have that arc, if you're asking senior people to step off a cliff, if they get pushed out, they go up, 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 and then they're pushed off the cliff, because they're too old and the chief financial officer says, my God, we're paying that person a lot of money. We could pay his or her successor two thirds of the salary. Right. Then it works that way. And so if faced being pushed off a cliff, then you will naturally resist if that's the only alternative. And then instead of working with the young, talented people, you'll, your natural inclination might be to undermine them. Totally agree. You have to create that kind of career arc where it's okay. By common agreement, this is your new role at a lesser title at a lesser salary, but fewer hours too. And this is what we'd like you to do. I think you'd have a lot of takers. I don't think there's any question. So Rich, we have a tradition on the podcast where we take a brief break from our conversation and we ask our guests a few questions about themselves personally, their interests, influences, philosophy. And so with your permission, I'd like to ask you a few questions in what we call the heartbeat round. And unlike with the questions that we've just been having, your goal is to give us a quick and instinctive answer and respond to each question in a heartbeat. You ready to go? You bet. <laughs> All right, good. The college major you'd choose if you were pursuing an undergraduate degree today. The history of technology and its impact on business and society. One highly undervalued leadership trait. Curiosity. Besides Forbes, the magazine or newspaper you never miss reading. I start my day with realclearpolitics.com and realclearmarkets.com. A writer you admire for his or her writing skills, not just for the ideas they express. Tom Wolfe passed away a few years ago, but he was the biggest influence in the way I thought that writing could be really cool. Meditation practice, yes or no? A stretching routine that is increasingly meditational as I get older. One organization that's already mastered the Business Roundtable's pledge, meaning they're already great to employees, their communities, and still deliver excellent returns. No secret there. You can find them at the top of the best places to work lists that are ubiquitous. Fortune publishes one and many others do too. A skill improvement you're working on right now. Staying calm under pressure. I find that I still occasionally battle anxiety and I'm working for new ways through meditation and diet to make sure that doesn't happen. A prediction about the future you're pretty sure will come true. There's two predictions about the future that you can bet the ranch on, and that is demographic trends and accelerating digital technology trends. And the demographic trend is, or primary one? 
demographics, China, for example, will, because it's one child policy for decades, will get older much more rapidly than people think. Number two, if you want to look at emerging markets that are interesting, look at the median age in the countries, India, Indonesia, Vietnam would be good places to look for business expansion. Great. The leadership trait that destroys the most careers. Certainty. Piece of advice you'd give your younger self. Woody Allen said it best, 90% of life is showing up. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Grace. A book you wish every person on the planet would read? Quiet by Susan Cain. And one author, spiritual leader or thinker whose philosophy most profoundly influenced you in your life? Kenny Moore. Kenny Moore was a great marathon runner in the 1970s, and he became a great writer for Sports Illustrated. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you, Rich, for going through the heartbeat round with me. I have one or two more questions I'd like to ask, so let's get to those. Let's go. Something just happened this past week or so that I really want to ask you, and I want to make sure that we're respectful of our audience's time. So if you can give me a quick answer to this, it would be great. Sure. But we had 180 top corporate CEOs pledge to broaden the purpose of a corporation. No longer are the shareholders going to be the only constituency that they focus on. And some of these companies are already doing it. They're already extraordinary. But some of them on the list are some of the worst offenders when it comes to at least not really regarding people or respecting people or caring about their employees very, very well. And so I'm wondering, do you think this pledge is window dressing or if companies plan to really change how they operate going forward? I think it's window dressing. I think it's a great fear out there in the next recession, unlike the previous recession where uh, some of the highest placed people didn't have to pay a price for it if they'd had a hand in causing the recession. This one, the pitchforks will be out. I don't really think it's necessary because so many magazines do these best places to work lists, and that's where the truth is told. Mm -hmm. That if you're one of these great employers that thinks about your employees, your broader community, those will show up on those best places to work lists. And if you're really serious about it beyond that, then take your company private. You know, one of the best places to work is SAS Institute, the soft company in Cary, North Carolina, and Research Triangle Park. And they're private, mm -hmm. so they can offer Olympic-sized swimming pools, yep. childcare, and all of that. Yeah, you know, I've been there, and I've written about them. They're in my book. I've built a very great relationship with Jim Goodnight, and I just don't buy that argument. People say to me, well, you know, they have full discretion to put a pool in and have gyms and all that, and it's because he owns the company. He's, like, worth $10 billion. This is, you know, reap what you sow in leadership. This has all come back. And so the idea that simply because shareholders are going to go, oh, they're giving these guys a pool, Google has figured it out that they're one of the most generous companies. And they even adapted SaaS's whole strategy on perks and even their whole leadership approach early on. So I think companies that use that as, well, we can't do that because we're publicly traded. I think they're missing a big opportunity there. Don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's so useful to have these best places to work lists. And so that's why my natural inclination as a skeptic here is to think this recent statement by all those CEOs is window dressing. And I would say, well, for crying out loud, the surveys are already out there. Some of you are already doing this. Some of you are not. And for the ones that are not now saying that you've found the light, you know, I just said, well, let's see. Okay. Let's see how it works out. I mean, that's been the response from all my connections on Twitter and social media. So yeah. that's a little bit disappointing. Before we go, near the end of your book, you posed a question to your readers. And I'm going to read it. You say, do I have the inner strength, the persistence, 
to find and live my destiny. That could mean quitting a safe job, leaving a circle of friends, or persevering even when faith or conviction wavers. And you said that the simple answer for all of us is yes. So as we close this out, tell us how you can be so sure why none of us should ever give up our hope and why you urge us to keep on going if we've yet to fulfill our own life's purpose. Well, I wrote Late Bloomers as a secular book because I didn't want anybody to not read it because they thought that it was informed from some religious or metaphysical point of view. But the fact is that I believe that we are all children of some higher power. I call that higher power God. But I believe that if we are created in God's image, then if we take that literally, we were born to create. Think about that. We are created in a creator's image, then we are born to create. That means that somewhere we are given gifts that are unique to us. And this whole journey of becoming a late bloomer, see, a late bloomer has two definitions. One is chronological. You know, a late bloomer is somebody who comes into their own later than society's expectations, and they often do it surprising the people around them. But the other one is sort of metaphysical definition, and that is late blooming means that you found that intersection that where your native God-given gifts and your deepest sense of passions, passions so deep that you're willing to sacrifice for them to the point where it becomes a mission, and your sense of purpose line up. And so you feel like you're pulled toward your destiny as opposed to being pushed by societal expectations. So I think it's in there that perfect intersection is there for all of us. And if we haven't found it, then we have to commit to the journey to find it. I'm really glad I asked the question. And, you know, I will say that what you described, it seemed that as you were closing it out, that there was a spiritual influence in your understanding of late blooming and purpose and what we're all here to do. And I think it aligns very much to the whole premise of the book, but it also aligns to just about every spiritual tradition there is. So whatever it is that you believe, with the exception of being agnostic or atheistic, I suppose, it's aligned to that. So this is longstanding teachings that we're all here to find our purpose and to not just find it, but to maximize it. Yeah, our presence here on earth is not random. I mean, that's my foundational belief. And therefore, we all are gifted with things that may not be obvious. The obvious ones are picked up early, our ability to do well on tests, concentrated school, et cetera, et cetera, or the brilliant entrepreneurial gene. And for most of us, it's not obvious. And that's why we have to begin this journey to find it. Rich Carlgaard, thank you so very, very much for coming on the podcast. It has been a profound joy. Well, I would say the same thing, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. We'll do it again. Thank you, sir. As we close out this episode, I once again hope that you'll continue to kindly introduce us to your friends so that we can continue to grow our audience and truly maximize our mission to bring more heart into workplace leadership. And if your organization is planning a meeting this fall or early next year, I would love to be your speaker anywhere in the world. I want to thank you for listening in. And speaking of thanks, I also want to acknowledge my wonderful team, Webmaster Randy Yant, my chief encouragers, Susan DeRoche and Ken Boynton, and my exceptional sound engineer and editor, Eric Oz. And until next time, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley, signing off for now. Mm